Hello, Mississippi and abroad. I'm Parrish Alford, and I'm joined by Jesse Mitchell, founder of the Mitchell Law Firm and former Ole Miss All-SEC defensive tackle. Welcome to another edition of the Justify Your Existence podcast. Jesse, how are you, man? Man, I'm doing great. How are you? Doing fine. It's good to see you. I mean, we, we go back a long way, Jesse. You were on that first Ole Miss team that I covered, 2002. Uh, we had just changed beats at the Daily Journal. I had been uh, with Mississippi State for six years, and it was kind of uh, learning uh, uh, people and places a little bit. You know, I knew how to get to Oxford. I knew where the stadium was and all that. But, uh, you know, the beat was new and different, and uh, and I always uh, remember you as a player uh, who was uh, uh, very forthcoming, very thoughtful uh, with your answers. and. Uh, you know, it, it wasn't coach speak, and I always uh, appreciated that. Those guys, uh, players like that stood out. So um, not surprised to see you uh, uh, making uh, your living uh, arguing now. So. <laughs> it's what I do, man. It's communication and representing people. Well, it, it, it strikes me as odd, though, that uh, you, you got no uh, all-SEC recognition from the coaches, man, because uh, – you know, it was it was Chuck Driesbach who said uh, Jesse Mitchell, man, he's the Eli Manning of the defense, and yeah. uh, you know, and everybody everybody understood what that meant. So, uh, you know, did, did he tell that to you, or did you just uh, read that somewhere? Where, how did you hear that? Well, I, I read it. Uh, you know how coaches are. Uh, <laughs> it's typically uh, you they get on your butt about the bad things you do. You know, but publicly is where they will, you know, uh, speak well of you and, and really tell the good things you do and what the impact you make in, on the team and for the team. But generally, they don't tell you that. They try to keep you humble in the locker room, but publicly they will say that, and, and I appreciate those guys for that. Yeah, i tell you what. Uh, I've tried to uh, keep in touch with some of the assistant coaches that I've covered through the years, you know, and uh, and Chuck was just one of the uh, the more down to earth, one of the more approachable uh, people that I've ever covered, you know, yeah. in, in any position. And so uh, I've chased him down a few times, uh, you know, found his name in a in a in a sports writer media guide or something when he was like an assistant with uh, somebody at Rice or somewhere, and and uh, you know just called the office phone and he picked up and we talked a while, so so that was good. Hey, before there was Ole Miss for you, uh, there was Moss Point, and I believe you were too young to play for the legendary Billy Wayne Miller. Is that right? I was. I was too young to play uh, for Coach Miller. My entire time at uh, Moss Point was with Coach Jerry Alexander. I remember him. I remember Coach Alexander as following. He was on that staff, was he not? With, he uh, was on the staff, and then he ascended to head coach. Yeah, Um I, I remember as a young sports writer getting to Mississippi in 89 and, uh, and I had to uh, make a phone call to Moss Point for uh, Coach Miller uh, for a Meridian and Moss Point advance. And, uh, mm -hmm. and, and, and some people were trying to prepare me for, uh, for Coach Miller, man. They were telling me, man, he's going he's gonna to wear you out. He's going to do this. He's going to do that. And, 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 and I was young and cocky and, and needed some of that football coach uh, humility, uh, you know. I, but I, in my mind, I'm thinking, all right, I'm not going to listen to this. 
I got one job here. I, I yeah. need a few questions about this game. I don't need to be uh, read the right act or introduced to anything like that. And, and uh, you know, and sure enough, uh, you know, he got on the phone and, and it was everything was short and gruff and and uh, and just really a little bit uh, antagonistic. And I don't know, <laughs> I don't know what had happened that day, but and it probably nothing, probably nothing. <laughs> and, and so finally, I just said, "Well, coach, thank you very much," and hung up on him. Okay, mm -hmm. and within a minute or two, that office phone was ringing, and uh, and Coach Miller was on the phone. Parish, I'm so sorry. I'm you know I'm just and he apologized, and mm -hmm. and uh, and and we talked, and we had a we had a great uh, interview, and just uh, a, a great relationship uh, after that. It was a lot of fun. I remember Jesse, and I, I don't want to get too far off, off the track. Oh, here, you did. I think you'll appreciate this. Uh, he died in 91. Okay. Mm -hmm. I was uh, in the hospital in uh, Mobile when I learned about that, had been in a car wreck. Okay. And a mm -hmm. couple of friends came to visit and they said, man, uh, Billy Wayne Miller died. And he, I think he had just coached. He had just coached in the all-star game in Mobile mm -hmm. in, in that year. And, uh, and I had spent some time with him there before uh, the wreck that I was in going back to cover that game. Anyway, so it's during the week, All-Star Week, all the practices going on. They're there on the South Alabama campus. There's this dorm room with a big lobby where the players would gather. I was in there for interviews, and he was in there, and we were talking. And then this big offensive lineman walks into the room, uh, uh, a heavy set young man. Don't remember mm -hmm. his name. But uh, Coach Miller jumps up, runs to the other side of the room, and says, Parrish, quick, come over here. Help me balance the room. <laughs> Man, that's, listen, uh, Coach uh, Billy Wayne was his his legend still looms in Moss Point and over Moss Point. He really um, put Moss Point on the map and created a program and a system that we profited from and have had great success. And I think Coach Alexander just took it to a whole a new level, but. The investments that Coach Miller made in that city is still paying dividends. And isn't that what uh, coaching is about or should be about and is about for so many, so many coaches is uh, is impacting people and, and making a difference. And uh, and so uh, it, it's fun to uh, to share stories like that. Uh, well, uh, Jesse, in terms of impacting people, you are also on the uh, search committee that uh, helped bring Lane Kiffin to Ole Miss. How's that working out? Well, you know, I, I was on the, so the search committee that um, hired Keith Carter. You were on Keith's committee. Okay. Correct. 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 Um, coach committee. No, okay. I was on the, the, the committee to uh, hire Keith, which I think is, was instrumental. And, and I, I think we cannot sing enough praises for what Keith has done. Um, I mean, in him being, and having the insight and, and actually the approach and ability to go out and hire Coach Kiffin, who I think has done nothing but phenomenal things for the university um, on, on every level, from players to exposure to um, fan base, getting the, the alumni back together, as well as getting former players back and in, in involved. Well, I'll tell you, Jesse, um, people who are familiar with Ole Miss understand uh, where the program was after sanctions uh, and, and understand, for better or worse, the apathy around the program 
in the time right after sanctions. Uh, I know that was a problem then. For Ole Miss to be uh, ten and two right now in the second season, and what's what's really more impressive, I think, right now is yes, ten and two is impressive, but you go back and look at winning four out of your last five last year, and you see this team seventeen and three over a twenty game stretch. Yeah, uh, it, it's really uh, to to be this far along at this stage of the game is is something else. So what what have you seen? What are you seeing there? Well, you, you see a coach who knows his players. You see a coach who knows how to put his players in the best positions to make plays in a, and understand. He understands the recruiting, these young men on how to get them to engage, to buy in, and then just look at, man, the, the war of attrition that we've had, that he's had to face this year with uh, on the offensive side of the ball, these different players going down, but they still find ways to make it happen. Now, having a great quarterback who can put the ball where it needs to be consistently really helps. Um, but then you also see uh, his hiring of, of uh, Coach Durkin and, and, and that crew, how they changed that defense and made it. And, I mean – when I look at defenses, I always say defenses play with attitude first. And you just look at the attitude. They, you look at them when they come on that field, they believe that they're supposed to be there and they're supposed to make an impact. They're not just there to hold you to third down and hopefully get the offense back on the field. They're out there to make plays. And I think changing that whole culture and mindset, that's just praises to Coach Kiffin and Coach Durkin and, and what they brought and, and been able to do. And like you said, the numbers bear it out. 20 and three, that's impressive. Well, I, I tell you what, and it was a, it's been a long time coming to build trust and faith in this defense when that defense is on the field. Because I, I look back, uh, Jesse, and we take it game by game here in the opener against Louisville. We saw a team that was playing fast and was playing with that confidence that you talked about, uh, things that we didn't see last year. All right. Then Ole Miss got into a little bit softer part of the schedule and, you know, and, and so uh, you weren't able to judge that defense as well. Then came Alabama. Uh, then came Arkansas. And, and for two weeks, that defense really kind of looked like last year's defense, mm -hmm. like mm -hmm. not a lot of progress had been made. And uh, I can remember that Arkansas game, uh, watching uh, A.J. Jefferson just sit in the pocket with all kinds of time and, uh, and Ole Miss not really try to pressure him, an average yeah. passer. Yeah. Not, not really trying to pressure him. Uh, and things changed after that. I, I understand that uh, there were some uh, coaching discussions, and uh, all of a sudden we see uh, you know, a defense that gets a key player back in Jake Springer, but then we see a defense, though, that's attacking more. And, uh, and really uh, turns out, hey, this, this group can rush the passer a little bit. Yeah, yeah. And, and you, you see that, Parrish, and you have, you know, Man, being I, I tell people this, being a former player and seeing what these guys go through Monday through Friday, or really Sunday through Friday, and then even in the off uh, off season, to really try to understand packages, players, putting players in the best position, um, it's you still have to pick coaches. They still have to pick their poison, right? Do I trust my guys to cover on the back end? Do we bring pressure? Um, what sort of defense are we going to be? Um, and that 
typically changes. Try you, you, if you have the ability to change that week in week out based on what the offense is doing. That's great. Sometimes you can. Sometimes you can't. Sometimes you miss it. Sometimes you you pregame and you make this plan for the week. But then once you get out there on the field in execution, it's just not the right call, um, you know, coverage over pressure. And I think what uh, they did when they had the discussions, they just committed and said, look, we're going to let our guys up front. We need to get we need to get pressure. We do better. If we can get pressure and interrupt the, the quarterback in the pocket. Our guys on the back end, that life is much uh, easier for them. And I think they made that commitment and found a way to do it. I think they made made a commitment to really understand what Sam was as well and put him in positions to where he could really utilize his talent and his skills to get to the quarterback without, you know, within a scheme to maximize and isolate him. Well, and I'll tell you what, the Egg Bowl was a great example of that defense working like it's supposed to. They got mm-hmm. some pressure. Sometimes they didn't get pressure. Sometimes they chose not to pressure. Yep. You, saw, you saw Will Rogers stand in that pocket many plays and look and look and look, and he just he couldn't find. Yep. He couldn't find what he was looking for. Uh, and then he chooses a check down, and they close fast. Yep. I, mean, that was, I, I thought uh, for much of that game, that was about as, as, as well as that defense uh, you know, could play, uh, a 3-2-6 uh, there. Man, I, I get the numbers confused. But uh, <laughs> anyway, hey, man, I want to uh, transition a little bit. One more question before we get to the NCAA stuff. Okay, so you were on this committee that uh, helped bring uh, Keith Carter about mm-hmm. as as AD. Uh, I remember uh, a comment that that Archie Manning made, and all that came around uh, the, the same time um, when when Kiffin was being hired. And Archie made the comment because uh, on this coaching committee, he was uh, more or less a consultant. I think he sure. was mm-hmm. not, not a regular committee member. And I remember Archie commenting that uh, this is a time for new leadership in these types of activities uh, at Ole Miss. And obviously you're, you're kind of a, a new age uh, in that leadership. How equipped is, is this new age to uh, do things like uh, serve on coaching committees and uh, advise when necessary and, and just uh, participate uh, in in a college athletics program. What do you think about uh, leadership like yourself and others right now? Sure. I, I think it's, I, I think it's, it's time. Uh, now you got to understand this. None of us are or will ever be Archie Manning. All right. The, the depth, breadth and reach that he has as a, as a former player, um, the first family of football, in, in my opinion, and what he's done for Ole Miss and his Rolodex is untouchable. All right. But um, Archie and, and he and I have had a lot of conversations. He's a great friend. He, he, he texts us often. We talk often. Um, but he understands that there's time for transition, that this is a new age and a new world. Even Paris, if you think about this, and I tell people this all the time, I'm not that old. I'm old, but not that old. At 40, the yeah. way we were recruited – and the way these coaches have to recruit now, it's it's Venus and Mars, night and day. Um, I didn't know the first time I met the guys that I signed with was when we walked on the campus as freshmen. You didn't communicate. We didn't have each other's phone number. We didn't have each other's Twitter account. We didn't have each other's Instagram. We didn't know those guys. The way we learned about them is you picked up a magazine and you saw the recruiting 
little blurbs as to you know who this guy was and, and and but all that has changed and so it 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 changes from the top down you have to have it starts with a university leader who understands is as Chancellor Boyce does to Keith Carter uh, who is understands the dynamics of sports and what they are now it's more of a business it's way more connected um, you have to be touching your fans and your alumni and recruits and always representing and putting your university out there with all the different social media uh, ways that they can do that now. Um, that, you know, Archie doesn't, doesn't have social media, right? So he understands that times have changed and that the leadership needs to change to reflect that if you're going to become and, and remain uh, the flagship university and really put out a great product from every sport, from football, baseball, basketball, football, I mean, women's sports, golf, you have to have that. And so you, you've seen Archie and some of the, the um, older guys really embrace us and bring us in and, and willing to talk to us and willing to tell us and willing to make connections with different people who are, uh, people in the know who can help you get things done, um, who can you can pick up the phone and call on when you are in those positions. I mean, his his wisdom and him serving on that committee on the committees that he and I have served on, and just at the time he spends in in really helping and transferring that wisdom to me as well as others and to Romero Miller and uh, Ben Craddock and those guys is immense. So it, it's and, and it's great. Sometimes what you see at universities, there's a power struggle where the old guard doesn't want to relinquish control to the younger leadership. But the world is is, is changing, you know, and, and I'll, I'll make this brief. It's like this. Uh, um, a friend of mine, I know uh, he was raised by his, his, his grandmother and she is like, man, I, I, you know, she is against taking an Uber buying anything online with a credit card, uh, social media, all those things. And that she, and he said, she basically raised me for a world that doesn't exist anymore. We're in a new, she doesn't want to fly. Uh, so I think that our administration and, and those guys that we're talking about understand that this is a new time, new world, and we need to, that they need to help usher a new leadership, younger leadership in to really make, help keep us where we need to be. Well, Jesse, I know you were part of uh, the representation of Ole Miss and the dealings with the NCAA, the investigation that finally uh, concluded there in, in 2017. Uh, what uh, what exactly was your role there? So my role has been um, it, it it expanded several years. Uh, initially, I'm brought in to represent the players when their initial investigations by the NCAA. Um, and then once those are closed, typically those occur throughout the year and they're fairly quick. Um, most of them are, a lot of them people never even know about. Um, it's just, and, and that goes on at every university. Um, but, um, and then after that, then you have the university side with the coaches and the university and actually the penalties are non penalties or the hearings and the back and forth filing of, of motions and documents. Um, that part comes later. And that's what typically what people do see is that aspect, but there's a lot of work, a lot of time and a lot of things that transpire two, three years 
prior to that before you actually see the other stuff hit the paper. Now you're having these hearings and um, wherever they are dealing with NCA, whether it's um, at NCA headquarters or some other undisclosed location. Um, I don't want to uh, relive the whole investigation. I, I thought the uh, NCAA's decision to grant the immunity to Leo Lewis uh, for testimony uh, after it was determined that uh, he accepted money from other schools as well. I mean, it is, uh, I just thought that was a strange. I, I'm not a historian here on NCAA investigations, but uh, that wasn't very common, was it? How often do you see something like that? Well, it's you. Let me say this, Bear. Sometimes we don't get to see everything that goes on within NCA, and, and especially in large NCA investigations. Like, there's a lot of things that go on in these investigations that are and will always remain behind closed doors. Um, so, how often it happens? We don't know. Um, how often is it known that it happened in this uh, situation is rare. Um, uh, it's, it's unique and it's one of those things, it's, it's discretionary uh, prosecution and non-prosecution is, is basically what it is. It's a determination that's made by uh, the investigators at the NCAA and the heads of the NCAA. Um, it, you know, sometimes you, you have to question and it flies in the face. All right, what's fair and what's not fair? Um, how you prosecuting one university or players on one hand for this conduct, but another you're given a pass. Um, you know, and, and, and you got to understand this, when you're dealing with the NCAA as these universities of players, you have to play exactly by and I'm speaking of in, in, in the investigation process by their rules, um, because you really don't have a lot of rights outside of what they decide. Um, you know, people, it's, 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 it's not like our court system where you may lose on the lower level, but then you have two or three layers of appeals to higher courts and other decision makers. Here, they're the judge, they're the detective, judge, jury, executioner, and basically uh, appeals. Um, so it's tough. And it's, it's, it's tough to formulate a plan and an approach, whether it's going to be heavy-handed, whether it's going to be light-handed, whether it's going to be, um, you know, I'm just going to lay all my cards out there on the table and ask for mercy, or am I going to stand up and fight? That's a decision and strategic decisions that have to go on at every university that's part of these NCAA investigations. So you'll see a lot of times that alumni, when you see the investigation, whether it's at LSU or um, Ohio State, Notre Dame, USC, Ole Miss, no matter what, people are, why, why aren't we being more aggressive? Why aren't we doing this? But it's, uh, you better have a very smart and strategic approach to try to get you the best outcome long-term. And you have to be able to read the room and read the tea rooms as much as possible, as little as possible. So what was the process in you guys developing your approach? Because, uh, you know, I, I heard that criticism a lot as that was going on. You know, we need to fight this. Well, you know, I, I, I guess uh, I guess you can fight. I mean, there are limitations, I guess, to what you can do. But in terms of 
developing the approach uh, for, for Ole Miss at that time, what was that process like? Well, you have to understand this. There are basically three separate and distinct parties uh, when you're talking about this sort of NCA investigation. You have the player aspect, which happens very early on. And then you have the coaches and then you have the university. And there are potential conflicts in all three. I did not represent the university. I've represented players uh, before and I've represented coaches. Um, and, and if you think about it, when you look at it, it's kind of like um, you're on the same team, but you kind of got everybody has an eye on each other, right? <laughs> because at the end of the day, it is three separate entities. Um, so we don't get there in a formal overarching strategy. Okay. I'm at my own discretion to uh, decide what's going to be my approach for whether I'm representing the player or whether I'm representing the coach. Um, and the university is at their own discretion on how they're going to represent themselves in their council. Now, you, you want to try to coordinate um, and try to be on the same page if possible, uh, but I may have an outlier um, as it relates to a player, an outlier as it relates to a coach in this whole overarching university deal. And my loyalty um, is to my client and not necessarily to the university, even though it may be, a it may be Ole Miss, the university that I play for and love, uh, or some other university. Uh, but my loyalty is to my client that has hired me. So, yes. Is there some sort of strategic plan and coordination to go? And you hope so, and you try. Uh, but at the end of the day, um, as attorneys, we have to represent our clients on an individual basis, try to get them the best outcome, regardless of what may happen to the other parties involved. I, I could see that. And, and most of the time, the player's interest and the school interests will align, but, but not all the time. Yeah, I mean, you know, and you can look at it different, uh, look at it differently. Uh, and the reason, and let me let me break it down in this way, the reason that the universities are allowed to hire outside counsel for the players is because inherently it is presumed that there's a conflict between the player and the university. Because if a player has done something um, unbeknownst to the university, that's a violation, then it could be. I haven't seen this, uh, but it could be that the university just acts as the player, throws the player under the bus to try to save themselves. So it's an inherent conflict. Um, you know, a lot of times it does, but there's also alignment as well. Um, and so that's a very delicate dance that as a, a lawyer representing the player that you have to be able to understand and dance, um, you know, because at the end of the day, you have, like I said, this entity, the university, and then this one player. And typically, the issue stems from something that is alleged that the player has done, not necessarily that there's some sort of collusion or cooperation or that he was directed to do on behalf of the university. Yeah. Uh, Jesse, there's a common opinion out there that the NCAA's role as enforcer uh, is weakening, I guess, as as the landscape shifts in college football, as the Power Five uh, conferences and schools become uh, 
even more powerful. You know, we see Texas and Oklahoma coming into the SEC and and some shifts like that. Um, what what are your thoughts here as the landscape shifts and and the NCAA's role? I think it goes back to the discussion we just had about new leadership and um, old leadership and times changing. When the NCAA was first created, what they did, what what they did, how they operated, and what athletic programs were, something totally different than what you have now. Now, this is a business, uh, plain and simple. And it's the NCAA used to, in my opinion, have immense end-all, be-all power. I think now the power, because of all the money that's come in from TV money, endorsements, and what this business, what, what athletics is, has become, um, and the NCAA's, I won't say ability, but I guess refusal to change and shift um, over time has really created a void and, and a power vacuum um, that I, I, I see that you, you are seeing that a lot of conferences um, in some of the bigger schools have really created um, immense leverage. Um, and then I think you see that the, the court ruling, the NCAA rulings, uh, I mean, sorry, the Supreme Court rulings on the NCAA and NIL and, and what universities can and cannot do, uh, can and cannot pay for and other restrictions has really eroded some of the hallmark foundations and restrictions that the NCAA has always applied on these players and universities and athletics. Now, the university is now trying to figure out how to catch up with that and how to um, put parameters and restrictions around it, but also to use it to their advantage. Um, so I do think that uh, the NCAA is going to have to make, if they're going to continue to survive, exist, and actually play a, a beneficial role, they're going to have to change. But um, I'm not so sure if, if these universities, these conferences um, – really feel and will remain locked in that they need the, the NCAA in their structure. So I think there's about to be a dynamic shift that is coming. Um, and again, either the NCAA is gonna have to make some shifts in the way they operate, um, or you're gonna see college football, college sports, college athletics become this whole different thing that we've never seen before. Well, which, which, which I don't think is a bad thing. Yeah, um, there's there's a comfort level a lot of times in where you are and what you know. It, mm -hmm. You know, sometimes people have a hard time turning loose about what this might become. Yeah. Uh, but if the NCAA goes away, if the conferences, as you say, decide, look, um, you know, we're consolidating now. We, we see this power that we have. Um we can be new and different. And, and maybe this question, you need to know a little bit more about what new and different is. But I'm, I'm asking here, Jesse, um, who's enforcer? If you take the NCA out of it, does another body arise, another group? Are there appointments made by these conferences that, that are gaining in power? How do these conferences police their rules, whatever their rules are. Yeah, I, I think what you would, I, I think there are probably two ways that go. It, it's a, a new independent 
uh, body or authority similar to the NCAA that is created, taking the good from what these conferences believe is the good from the NCAA and leaving the, the old and bad, or that there are committees uh, within themselves that are kind of, here, here's the head committee, here's, here's who's gonna make determinations on, here are the rules and enforcing violations of the rules as they are now newly created. Um, and I think that's probably what you will see um, is that they would want, I don't think you'll see them go back to a structure. If this happens, they'll go back to a structure similar to the NCA. where you have this independent, totally independent body out there. I think you'll see that it is going to be made up of the, a committee of the members of these various, um, whoever the power players are. Um, whether it's, you know, the new conference that emerges, a new whole different program or system, because I think they're the ones who have the vested interest and will want to be able to call the shots. So they want their representatives up there to do something fair on an equal basis because they still have skin in the game. Yeah. Sometimes when your defense is really bad and you have to hire a head coach, you know, you, you want to hire that defensive background. You know, you 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 want to you 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 want to get really close to what you think you need, and you want to distance yourself from what your problem was. Correct. Uh, so yeah, if they if the NCAA is identified as a problem, yeah, yeah, it's yeah. an interesting time. Interesting time, no doubt. You brought up uh, NIL here, Jesse. How does that change the landscape right now? I mean. Obviously, the schools have very little control over these, uh, you know, very little things they can do regarding NIL. And, and for years, you know, the the uh, the number one violation, I guess, we would all hear about would be uh, improper benefits, whether it was a you know a car or cash and, and all these things. And 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 now, uh, hey, these players can go out and sign their own deals. Now, granted, it looks like what I'm seeing right now that very few you know, are, are signing those mega deals, but, uh, you know, a lot seem to be getting a little, uh, mm -hmm. somewhere along the way, but, uh, how, how does, uh, NIL play into the future of the NCAA? Do you think, because as you mentioned, I mean, it took Congress to get uh, NIL to this point. It wasn't the NCAA making this change. Yeah. Well, uh, man, I, that's a, that's a, a topic in a debate that, um, I've had with a bunch of friends and, and, and I think if I call 10 of my random friends and we have the discussion, they're probably 10 different opinions. <laughs> um, um, I mean, it, it, when this thing was coming about, I had some that were like chicken little, oh, the sky's falling, college athletics as we know it will no longer exist. Um, and <clears throat> I'm, I'm, a, I'm a capitalist and I, I said, look, I don't think so. I think that what you'll see is, yes, this is new. This, this is different, um, but it all shake out. Schools, universities, players, everybody involved will figure out how to make it work. Uh, or you're going to get left behind. Um, I think, you know, it's kind of like when the Internet first came about in e-commerce, you know, regulation of that was behind the actual uh, business and, and, and transactions that were that were going on. I think right now, like I said, it didn't, it hadn't changed 
college athletics much at all to this point. You've seen a few major negatives. I think that was just people jumping in uh, uh, up front and out of fear of missing out. Um, I think you've now seen it kind of calm down and subtle to where it's going to be, but you're going to see an uptick again. And people are trying to find ways to leverage this to give some advantage. And um, I think universities are going to have to figure it out. I think athletic departments are going to have to figure it out. Um, and and I'm, I think the NCAA right now is kind of hands off as much as possible uh, because they don't know what to do. And they, they're afraid to do anything that may make them look bad or, or put them in even more problematic situation. What steps could the NCAA have taken through the years to, to kind of bring this in and bring it along at a slower pace and, in essence, uh, bring it in under their control? Man, I, I, and Parrish, I think that question actually applies to other aspects as well. Um, I have, which I, what I think maybe is not uh, that popular of opinion, but you've heard me refer to college athletics already as a, as a business, especially when you're talking about uh, football. Um, I think the NCAA uh, for the longest wanted to hold on to the amateurism uh, label and tag. And that's what it used to be. But now with all the money that's floating around with everything that's going on, this looks more like a business than amateurism. And with that, um, I, the NCAA has seen this coming, but I, it's one of those things where I think they were paralyzed in fear of holding on to what always has been versus embracing what, what is actually about to happen and come. Um, I think that they could have got with some of the leadership and, and some of these um, major college campuses and college programs and said, okay, we understand what this is now and what's about to happen. How can we craft this and create a system and a rule that's going to be fair for everybody to, to a certain degree and actually put some structure and parameters? Because there, right now, when, when the ruling came down and they were forced to do it, it's just gangbusters. There, there really aren't any major restrictions on it. Um, and I think that may have been more harmful than if they would have basically going ahead and approached it and, and handled it internally and try to set something up as, as opposed to getting smacked in the face with it. Um, so I just think that, again, they are hesitant to transition into this new understanding of what college athletics is. And, and, and if not, they're going to get left behind. I haven't gotten the sense, Jesse, that, uh, that NIL – has been a locker room issue. I know that was uh, something that, you know, a, a little bit of the unknown coaches discussed that a little bit. Uh, I see you shaking your head. So you haven't seen any of that, haven't heard any stories about division because uh, this guy's getting this and this guy's not. Nope. In the locker room, there's already division. Um, and, and it's not necessarily negative division. Um, everybody knows, put it this way. When I was at Ole Miss, everybody knew that Deuce McAllister was Deuce McAllister. All right. And that there were um, you treat your your superstars are going to be treated differently. They're going to sign more autographs. They're going to have more interviews. 
they're going to be allowed more leeway when it comes to practice and coaches not putting wear and tear on their bodies, right? Because I know this deuce is going to perform on Saturday. I don't have to grind him like I have to do some of my freshmen, some of my young guys. So there's already a hierarchy within athletics, period. And that's that's even from high school all the way through. There's a hierarchy all the way to the, to, to, to the professional level. And there's nothing and, – and I think – why you don't see that is there's nothing that the universities or the coaches can do or do as it relates to NIL. That's something totally outside of the locker room. That's something totally independent of the players. So I like, and I heard that argument from several people. I was like, why would there be right now? The starting quarterback gets treated differently, but that's even by the coaches. Right. And there's still not a problem. There's not that now you do see that there's a problem sometimes, but, this is happening every, every on every team everywhere, meaning there's a hierarchy. And NIL is totally independent of anything that the coaches or the universities are doing. So you, I've yet to hear or, or see any players, there's been any um, conflict or issues between players because one is get, has an NIL deal and another one does not. Because this is something totally independent of it, it comes from exposure, stature, and then an outside company wanting to pay this player for uh, their name and likeness. It has nothing to do with, you know, the guy sitting next to me. I'm not taking anything out of his pocket. So, I, I, no, I, I haven't heard anything anywhere. And I've actually had an opportunity to talk to players and coaches about it. Oh, so what do the players say? What do they say about NIL? I assume that everything's good. They like it. Uh, this is this is a good thing. I mean, what's what's their reaction that you're hearing? Sure. They, they like it. It's a good thing. It's an opportunity. And, and you got to understand, it's probably 95% of them have no NIL. Deal. Yeah. Nothing has changed for them. Um, and they're okay with that. Some who can and get it, great. Um, it's just another opportunity for them to actually – Oh, really, I was, I was not another, but probably the only opportunity for them to actually monetize their name, likeness, and their brand from what they've done over all these years. So I, I've i yet to hear any player say anything negative about NIL. Folks, that'll wrap us up for this edition of Justify Your Existence. For Jesse Mitchell, I am Parrish Alford. Thanks for being with us.